The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist, and I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture. Joining me today is Jim Riddle. He is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota. I had the pleasure of taking a course with Jim at the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service meeting a couple of years ago. It was titled Organic 101, and it could have been a week-long course. It was absolutely fascinating. It confirmed my belief that organic agriculture and organic food production systems are the best for the world our children, our planet, our water and air. And I wanted to have Jim on because there have been so many uh, headlines lately or reports in the press that dispute the benefits of organic. And I thought we should set the record straight. So welcome, Jim. Well, thank you, Melinda. It's a pleasure to be with you. So let's start with what organic agriculture is. Yeah, well, it's agriculture production production system that avoids the use of synthetic pesticides and fertilizers. It also does not use genetically engineered organisms or GMOs. Uh, Organic livestock don't receive any antibiotics or hormones, and there's no use of sewage sludge or irradiation. But more importantly to me uh, is uh, the fact that organic farmers are required to have conscientious soil building programs and good crop rotations and prevent erosion and promote biodiversity and recycle nutrients. So it's a very ecological type of system. It's not just what is avoided, but it's what actually is accomplished to sustain life on Earth. Well, you've had over 25 years experience in the field of organic agriculture, and I'm sure you've seen firsthand the benefits of these organic production systems. I remember at the Moses Conference where the farmer of the year had had no erosion, and he received, you know, this standing ovation because of his production methods, his organic production methods created such a healthy soil matrix that he was able to prevent erosion when all of his neighbors who were farming conventionally saw their water running off and saw crop loss and damage. Yeah, well, and I think that was uh, in Iowa and at a time when his farm received about 10 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. Exactly. Yeah, and it was able to absorb that uh, in the grass waterways, prevented any soil loss. Exactly. So this is good news as we experience climate change. You know, I remember in the Organic 101 course that I took with you, you said something really important, and I have repeated it often, and it was that the national organic standards that we have on the books today, we have because we fought for them, not because USDA gave them to us. And I want to mention to our listeners that you served on the National Organic Standard Board. In fact, you were the former chair of that USDA National Organic Board. What did you learn from that experience? 
Well, <laughs> the thing I've been saying lately is, you know, once you get in bed with government, you need to get up early every day. <laughs> uh, that's something I learned is that, uh, yeah, we fought for the law to be passed. We fought for having a good set of standards and a good regulation. And uh, But, you know, we can't rest. Uh, that we have to stay engaged, and even with now a supportive administration, and there have been a lot of good signals, a lot of good changes happening, but still, we have to be at the table, and we have to demand that organic get its fair share. I mean, still, even though organic is about 3% of the food market, it's nowhere near that as far as the amount of funding that it receives from USDA. It's Way, way less than even 1% of funding. And so, you know, we have to stay engaged. We have to hold both our elected officials and uh, the bureaucrats accountable and submit comments when there's opportunity to submit comments and, you know, stand up for the integrity of the organic program. Absolutely. You remind me of a quote of Thomas Jefferson who said that eternal vigilance is the true price of freedom. And I think that, you know, it's very easy. I think humans, by their very nature, like to get comfortable. But you make a very good point, and that is we have to pay attention. You know, organic is the only area in the food marketplace that is growing by leaps and bounds. I think, is it 20% growth a year? Well, it has been, um, but like everything else in the economy, that growth has slowed, but it's not gone negative. It's still growing, um, especially things like, you know, people that shop at farmer's markets or join community-supported agriculture programs. Gardening is, you know, increasing at record numbers this year, but also kind of the real foods, the things that aren't highly processed, highly packaged, and highly advertising because, you know, people are, you know, trying to, uh, you know, use their food dollars wisely, and when they buy organic foods, they are getting, uh, uh, you know, good nutrition for their food dollars. Yeah, and, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is, to help our listeners understand that food is more than the sum of nutrients. And I think dietitians probably get blamed a lot for doing that. You know, we're, we're counting grams and milligrams of this or that. But really, I think from a nutritional standpoint, we need to look at food from a more ecological perspective and say, you know, food is more than the sum of its nutrients. It depends how it was raised, who raised it, where it, ki- where it came from, how many miles it traveled. You know, what is the impact of our food dollar on the planet? And that's really why I support organic agriculture, as well as the fact that I've, I've been swimming in reports that look at the effects of pesticides on children and that they, they're more susceptible to the adverse effects of those pesticides. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your understanding of why organic production systems are better for the environment. Well, yeah, I mentioned some of the things already, the, uh, you know, preventing erosion and uh, building soil health and uh, those sort of things, but a few just research findings. One interesting study done here at the University of Minnesota showed that uh, there were drain tiles underneath both organic and conventionally managed fields, side by side, same soil type, same region, and less water was going into those drain tiles under the organic fields, number one. 
and by 60% less water, so significantly less water. And the water that was in those drain tiles had less nitrates, so less contaminants. So the organic practices which build the humus, the organic matter in the soil, that acts as a sponge that captures the the water so it's not escaping into the drain tiles, into the ditches, into the rivers, and into the Gulf of Mexico, causing a dead zone with all those nutrients. So that's just one of the uh, you know positive ecological impacts. But it, it's quite graphic, I think. You know, when those organically managed soils ha- hold the moisture, then the crops are more tolerant of drought. And uh, the Rodale Institute, over 25 years of research now, has shown that in the uh, drought years, in side-by-side trials, the organic crops outperform the conventional crops, outyield uh, significantly because of those higher levels of organic matter in the soil conserving the moisture. Um, and as well, the, the organic crops have more extensive root systems because they have to work to find their nutrients. But the soil has better structure, so the roots can penetrate and, and find nutrients much more easily than compacted soils in a conventional system where synthetic fertilizers essentially kill the soil life and you don't have the additions of organic matter from soil building crop rotation. So you're not building soil quality like you do with organic practices. And all of the promises that we've been given with genetic modification, where the plant is genetically modified to withstand spraying of one of the more popular herbicides here in the Midwest, of course, would be Roundup. Uh And then what that does in terms of long-term weed resistance. Have you seen uh, any research on that? Oh, yeah. There's there's quite a bit of research showing that there's, there's almost... 20 species of weeds now that are showing resistance to glyphosate or Roundup. You know, it's, and I see that just driving through the countryside in Minnesota as you see some fields that are planted to Roundup ready soybeans, but they have one species of weed or another that's predominant that has survived and, and reproduced and, and it will be producing seed of, you know, Roundup resistant type of weeds. But Also, you know, this has led to multiple applications of the herbicide or uh, recommendations from university and uh, uh, pesticide applicators uh, to apply additional types of herbicides. So, and and then there's the whole issue of the uh, BT uh, crops, the crops that are genetically engineered to have the Bacillus thuringiensis toxin, just the toxic genes in every cell of the plant. And people say, oh, that the BT corn has led to a decrease in the use of insecticides. And that is really uh, misinformation because the crop itself is registered with EPA as a pesticide. So the seed is a pesticide, and it's a biologically active pesticide that remains in the soil after the crop has been harvested. And research by Indiana University has shown that those crop residues and the pollen from these BT corn 
are toxic to caddisfly larvae in the uh, water bodies. And caddisfly are kind of a keystone species in the aquatic ecosystem. They're a food source for many other aquatic organisms, but yet the Bt crop residues are toxic to those caddisfly larvae, and they're certainly toxic to monarch butterflies, black swallowtails, and other uh, lepidopteran. Wow, it's worse than I thought. <laughs> well, it's pretty pervasive. Yeah, it is. If you had a magic wand and you could enact um, some sort of legislation that would make the organic program stronger yeah. and reduce this kind of abuse to the environment, what would you do? Well, uh, the, the Organic Foods Production Act was adopted in 1990. That was before any GMOs were commercialized, were, were uh, licensed. And so the act itself is silent on the issue of genetic engineering. It's only in the regulation that the use of, of GMOs is prohibited. So that's one thing. I, I think we need to go back to the act and be very clear that GMOs are not appropriate. I mean, organic is based on farming in harmony with nature, using natural systems that humans and all you know living organisms have evolved uh, and are able to survive. And you know, conventional agriculture is based on control, and genetic engineering is like the ultimate control, where we're creating organisms that have never existed in nature before, that have novel DNA sequences that combine the genes from you know the crop with genes from a virus, a bacteria, or any you know a fish or any other organism, a human being even. So it's total an antithesis to the organic principle, which is you know farming in harmony with nature. And I would like to see more clarity on the prohibition of the use of any GMOs and a very open discussion, uh, public discussion of thresholds when inadvertent contamination occurs. You know, consumers understand when they purchase organic foods, they are making every attempt to avoid both pesticide residues and GMOs. The regulation sets a tolerance for a very low level of pesticide, which is less than 5% of the EPA tolerance for a given pesticide on, on a certain crop. But there's no tolerance one way or another for GMO contamination. And so I think that's something that, you know, a number of countries, the European Union, uh, Korea, other uh, Japan, other countries have established GMO thresholds or tolerances for organic products. And that's something I think we have to discuss and can't continue to ignore in the U.S. So we as citizens, would we be best uh, to have this conversation with our legislators is there a way for us to join with an organization to have more power in getting these messages across? Well, yeah, there's certainly a number of uh, organizations, you know, that uh, are active at influencing legislation and regulation. You know, the uh, Center for Food Safety is one that's very active on the GMO issue. There's also the Organic Farming Research Foundation 
and then the National Organic Coalition, which is a, a kind of an umbrella group of different organizations that has a Washington voice to influence you know, legislation and regulations. But, uh, you know, I, I think uh, just bringing the issue up, you know, with members of Congress is, is, you know, a good idea. But really, you know, I think it's just more important to get back to the fundamentals that I talked about at the beginning, and that is just to get a fair share for organic. That's a lot more important talking point when a member of the public talks with their member of Congress or or some other legislator is organic has multiple benefits, environmental, social, health, but it's not getting its fair share of funding and support and research and it takes three years for a farmer to convert, you know, the, the operation to organic to get certified. And in, in Europe, you can receive a, a payment to help make it through that transition period. When you're adopting organic practices and you can't sell your crop for any kind of a premium, so there's quite a barrier there. It's hard for farmers to get financing to make that change. If they're under the government programs right now, they would have to be enhancing their crop rotation and switching from corn on corn or corn and beans to a rotation that has small grains and legumes like clover and alfalfa. And so they would be losing those support payments that they receive for those five target crops that are supported by the uh, direct payments and subsidies. And so there are kind of some institutional barriers to farmers switching to an organic system that really should be addressed through changes in farm policy. Absolutely. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Jim Riddle. Jim is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota and has been involved in organic agriculture for over 25 years. Um, and I do want to mention that I had the pleasure of meeting Jim at the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service Board meeting. I took a, an Organic 101 course with Jim and realized that uh, organic agriculture has got to be the wave of the future in terms of feeding the people on this planet. Jim also has served on the National Organic Standard Board, and he, in fact, was the former chair of that board. Jim, uh, you know, we get so many messages from the biotech industry that that it's GMOs that are going to feed the world and that it's GMOs that are going to create the next new crop to help us through climate change. And somehow I'm not so sure about that. Um, we have as many now, we have um, over a billion hungry people in the world. That number continues to climb. How do we address these kind of warm, fuzzy messages from the biotech industry when we know, including the um, well, research, including the report that came out from the Food and Agriculture Organization that points to organic agriculture as being the way to truly feed the world? Yeah, well, I think that is a good uh, a good reference point is the uh, FAO report, you know, impartial body under the United Nations uh, saying that organic agriculture must be part of the solution to feeding the world on into the future. And, uh, you know, we look at the promises that have been made for genetic engineering, GMOs, and they really haven't uh, borne fruit. What they've done is kind of locked 
producers in on a, uh, a different treadmill, one where they buy the seeds from the same company that sells the herbicides, so the companies make profits on both ends. The seeds cost more. They're totally dependent on use of that herbicide from the same company. That's been where the GMOs have really headed because they result in maximum corporate profits for the companies that own the patents on these life forms. And uh, it's a very mm, short-term way of thinking. It's, it's narrowing the gene pool instead of broadening. And anyone who studied ecology knows that a broad and deep gene pool is needed to adapt to changes in the climate or new diseases, new parasites, and instead we're going down a track with a very narrow gene pool. I agree with you. And just one more comment that, uh, you know, if we're concerned about feeding the world, why are we turning corn and soybeans into fuel? I mean, those should be food, but most of the corn and soybeans either goes to feed livestock or it goes into fuel these days. And so that kind of undercuts the argument that conventional agriculture wants to feed the world when now it seems it wants to feed it ethanol and biodiesel. Yeah, you know, getting back to the issue of biodiversity for a moment, uh, there was a wonderful report that came out of the Harvard School of Public Health that really drew attention to biodiversity in terms of being necessary for plant and human health. And what I see sometimes when I drive between Missouri and Minnesota is I drive through Iowa and I see these acres and acres of corn and soy, again, with that very narrow gene pool. And I really I think back in terms of agricultural history to the potato famine, and I think, what are we doing? And one of the things that I remember about your organic session at the Moses Conference was this attention to these myriad organisms in the soil and the many forms of plants and animals that we have got to keep on this planet for our own health. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and uh, part of the organic regulations, you know, besides requiring that farmers maintain or conserve biodiversity, is the use of varieties of crops and breeds of livestock that are well adapted to the system. That you know, so you're going to have different uh, crops being grown in you know Texas versus Iowa and Minnesota, and different genotypes, things that are resistant to the diseases that are prevalent in an area or that are well adapted to an organic production system. And that is an area where we need more research. We need, you know, instead of comparisons of organic versus conventional, what we need are, you know, really sophisticated research on the best organic methods, comparing four different organic treatments, you know, and, and determining which ones work best in a given bioregion to produce the highest level of nutrients and that need the fewest inputs and work well in that particular ecosystem. Yeah, you know, I remember when, you know, these last few reports that have come out that have disputed the benefits of organic, there has been some hair splitting. Well, you know, does the conventional crop have more milligrams of this particular nutrient versus another, and is that significant? And I think, wait a second, we need to move away from the minutiae 
and look at organic agriculture from a much broader, holistic perspective. We also had a conversation before our talk today about the loss of nutrients in our food supply. Was it USDA that did that research that found that over the past 50 years we've actually lost nutritional content? Right, yeah. It's USDA's own data shows that uh, we've lost uh, nutrient content in protein and a number of, of vitamins and minerals in the last 50 years that we've been practicing industrial agriculture. Uh, you know, there, there aren't many people talking about that, but what kind of agriculture did we have 50 years ago? Well, it wasn't quite organic, but it was a lot closer to it than we have these days. But the soil's being depleted, and that is taking a toll. And when we replenish the soil, build the organic matter, build the ecology of the soil, the health of the soil, it only makes sense that the crops will have more nutrients and more health. Absolutely. Does it take a rocket scientist to come to this <laughs> well, conclusion? No. All I need to do is go out to my garden and pick a tomato, and it's just dripping with flavor, and I compare that to something I might buy in the grocery store, and I'm like, no thanks. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yes, we haven't, even, we haven't even touched on the taste issue yet. Well, yeah, but you know those... Those uh, you know things taste good for reasons because they want you know they're they're trying to get you to eat them so that you will ingest the seeds and spread them around. But you know there's a reason why foods that are healthy are packed full of flavor. It, it's not just an accident. That's right. And you know, uh, several weeks ago, I interviewed Don Lauder, who had gotten his PhD at UC California in Davis, and he had uh, reminded me about some studies that were done on grapes and wine, I believe, that had uh, much more of that beneficial uh, resveratrol in it. So I'm not going to have an argument with someone over minutia levels of nutrients. Yeah, well, one really interesting study, a long-term, 10-year study from UC Davis, and you mentioned California, on tomatoes, and finding that the level of two antioxidants, quercetin and kemphorol, uh, increased it was between 70 and 90% over the, the, that 10-year period compared to conventional side-by-side plots, same cultivar, same varieties, same soil. But what's really interesting about the study is that with the organic system, those levels continue to increase every year, whereas with the conventional treatments, those levels remain flat. And that tells me that building that soil has improvement effects that play out over time and continue to increase as the soil health and uh, nutrient levels uh, increase as well. Well, Jim, you have sold me again. Uh, This is not news to me, but I hope that the people who are listening to us today feel a little bit better about their decisions to support organic agriculture and purchase organic food for their families. Um, We have been talking to Jim Riddle. He is the Organic Outreach Coordinator at the University of Minnesota with over 25 years' experience in organic agriculture and former chair of the USDA's National Organic Board. Jim, we're out of time. I want to thank you so much for being with me. We will speak again, I'm sure. And for all of our listeners, I just want to remind you that you are listening to Food Sleuth Radio, which is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Jim, thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you, and happy eating. Thanks, you too. All right.